0: right. Uh, Well, good morning, uh, citizens. Welcome to our 10 a.m. service. Especially want to welcome our children, our youth students um, who are joining us today, and our children's ministry volunteers. Um, Thank you for all your condolences and your texts and messages about the Eagles. Um, I, I preached on generosity last week, and I really believe the Eagles embodied generosity by giving that win to the Chiefs. And so, Um, I also realized that, like, uh, you know, the two brothers, Jason Kelsey and Travis Kelsey, Jason was the older brother, and so it's just like the older brother to give to the younger brother, and so I just, I was really proud of the Eagles um, last week, embodied Christ. Um, Okay, on that note, uh, always a privilege to bring us God's Word. Uh, If you have your Bibles, if you want to turn with me to Luke chapter 4, we're going to look at verses 1 to 4. Luke chapter 4, verses 1 to 4. If you're following along on a mobile device and you can choose your translation, I'm going to be reading from the NIV, and it's also going to be on the screen behind me. Luke chapter 4, verses 1 to 4. This is the reading of God's Word. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, left the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days, and at the end of them he was hungry. The devil said to him, if you are the son of God, tell this stone to become bread. Jesus answered, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone. Amen. Uh, Let me say a prayer for us as we get into the word. Holy Spirit, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing to you. May you open our hearts and our eyes to receive what you would have for us today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Uh, Well, we're continuing our series on the liturgical life, where we're looking at the various practices and rhythms that shape Jesus' life, these practices that kept Jesus connected to the Father, that kept Jesus grounded amidst so much chaos and uncertainty in the world, and each week we're looking at one specific practice and we're asking, how can we begin to incorporate this practice into our lives here in Los Angeles in 2023 so that we too can be rooted, so that we too can, be, can stay connected to God and experience life with Him amidst all that's going on in our world. And we've now looked at the practice of silence and solitude, the practice of simplicity, prayer, reading scripture, Sabbath, Last week, we looked at the practice of generosity. And again, the the power isn't in the practices themselves. These practices are portals that allow us to experience life in the kingdom of God. So we're not trying to earn God's love. We're simply opening ourselves up to receive the love God already has for us in Christ. And I think it's really important, uh, especially today, to say that because the practice we're looking at today is the practice of fasting, and of all the practices, I think this is the, not only the one that's the most misunderstood, but I would say the one that can most easily turn into legalism, okay? There is no practice that will make a person feel holier than everyone else than the practice of fasting. And um, I think that the timing of this sermon is perfect because this Wednesday marks the start of Lent. And for those of you uh, who don't know what Lent is, On the Christian liturgical calendar, it's a period of 40 days, excluding Sundays, leading up to Easter. And it's meant to imitate the 40 days of Jesus in the wilderness. So in the text we looked at today. Um, And it's meant to um, kind of commemorate that time. And because, as we just read, Jesus fasted from food for those 40 days, this has become a season typically marked by fasting. Okay, And maybe you've heard a lot of people ask, Hey, are you fasting anything for Lent this year? What are you fasting? And some people say they're fasting sweets or alcohol or social media and all great things to take breaks from. I would say definitely recommend it for your own physical or emotional health, Um, but not sure I would call that fasting, uh, at least in the biblical sense. Um, I I read a post this week where someone said they were going to fast from toxic people during Lent. (laughs) And um, I was like, maybe you should just always stay away from toxic people. Um, but all this to say, uh, it's just kind of, fasting is just kind of a word that we throw around and something we do during this season without really knowing what it is and why we even do it. And I think what, what makes this even more confusing is that in recent years, you have things like intermittent fasting and juice cleanses that have become very big uh, in, here in L.A. And I, I know people who swear by it. Um, who talk about all of its health benefits. And, I, you know, as someone who's tried it myself, I can definitely attest to those things. And it's really funny because some of y'all are the greatest evangelists when it comes to fasting. And some of you are militant in the way you keep to your intermittent fasting schedules and plans. Uh, but the moment we start talking about fasting in the church, it's like, that's legalism. It's self-righteousness. right, we don't do that here. And on some level, it's understandable because even in the Bible, fasting was a practice that was commonly abused as a way to puff oneself up. One of the biggest rebukes of God toward his people, uh, we read about it in Isaiah 58 when he talks about how meaningless it is that they fast, and yet they're still exploiting each other. They're still uh, oppressing people. They're still turning a blind eye to injustice. They continue to fight and quarrel, and God, is, God says, you might as well not fast, fast at all. It's not worth it. You've missed the whole point. Jesus himself often has to warn his followers about the dangers of a kind of fasting that's rooted in pride and self-righteousness, the fasting of the Pharisees, who used this practice as a way to show everyone just how holy and devoted they were. And so it makes sense that... Um, You know, anytime you talk about fasting in the church, it can make people feel a little bit uneasy. And it's one of those practices uh, that you just think, okay, that, you know, I'm good with prayer, I can read the Word, you know, I I can get behind generosity, but, you know, I, I don't think fasting is for me. But what many of us may not know is that for most of church history, fasting was as central to the church life as prayer. If you were a Christian, you fasted. It was just part of, a, part of your way of life. Even when Jesus talked about fasting, he never said, if you fast, you got to do this. He says, when you fast, do this. It was always just assumed that his followers would fast. And I remember that was really surprising to me because growing up, for me at least, fasting was always a practice reserved for only the most elite Christians. And it was only the practice you did when things got really dire in your life, when you just felt like a normal prayer wasn't gonna be enough. So like when you really wanted the girl, you fasted, okay? And you said like, I'm, gonna, I'm not just gonna pray, I'm gonna take some time to fast, right? And, and we kind of thought that this was just reserved for a small subset of the church, but when you go through the 70 some odd references to fasting in the Old and New Testaments, you realize that fasting was a very basic spiritual discipline. It's something everyone did. In the book of Acts chapter 13, They're talking about the church at Antioch. And it says, while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I've called them. Right? While they were worshiping the Lord, just a typical day worshiping the Lord and fasting. And then it says, so after they had fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them and sent them off. When they sent people off, they didn't just pray for them, they fasted. It was just a part of their regular rhythm of life. And that was the case for a long time in the church and I think somewhere along the way fasting kind of became one of those things that made people very uncomfortable because it just, you know, smelled like religiosity. But what I find very interesting is that when you read the book of Matthew, Jesus explicitly names three core practices of his disciples. And you know what those three core practices are? Praying, giving, and fasting. He says, you will know you will be able to spot one of my followers because they pray, because they give, and they fast. And, and this was really humbling for me because to be honest, fasting has never been a part of my regular rhythm. I can count on one hand the number of times I've ever fasted, and I can't even say I did it for the right reasons. Um, I remember the first time I did a semi-extended fast. It was in college, and there was someone... In my, campus ministry, on my, in my campus ministry that everyone said, you know, he, he's like the holiest man you'll ever meet. And I guess he fasted for, he, he was a college student, fasted for three days, only water. So I said, you know what, I'm gonna fast for four. And you know, I have a little bit of like a competitive drive inside of me. Um, and you know, uh, I was like, I'm gonna do it for four. And th- what I did was the night before my fast started, uh, there was this restaurant on campus called Beijing. And I went and got four orders of Grandfather Chicken. And I, like, just binged on Grandfather Chicken that night. And I made myself feel so disgusting that for the first two days of the fast, I was just, like, writhing in bed in fetal position. The third day of the fast, all I did was look up uh, restaurants and food that I was going to eat once my fast ended. And then on my final day of the fast, about six hours before my fast ended, I went to three different restaurants. I got the food. I set it up on my table, and I just looked at it uh, for about six hours. And so um, all that to say, like, it did nothing for me. It did nothing for my spiritual life. Um, I don't know why I did it. Um, but, but as I've been preparing for this sermon, I've just been so convicted uh, to recover this practice of fasting in my own life and, and hopefully um, here at Citizens. Okay, so um, if you're following along and you want to take notes, I have three points. The first is what is fasting? What is biblical fasting exactly? And Richard Foster has this book called The Celebration of Discipline. It's kind of the go-to handbook for all things spiritual practices. And he defines fasting very simply. He says fasting is just refraining from food for a period of time for spiritual purpose. Refraining from food for a period of time, for a spiritual purpose. And really, the heart of fasting is longing. It's about one passion driving out another passion. It's willingly saying no to our physical appetite in order to intensify our spiritual appetite. And I want to be very careful here because fasting, contrary to popular belief, is not a way to show God how much you love him, Is not a way to prove your devotion to God and earn His favor and get God to do what you want Him to do, right? A lot of times, like I said, I've heard people say, I've been unemployed for a while and I I, I just feel like prayer isn't enough and I have to fast because I need a job now. You know, I've been single for a while. I really want to get married and prayer isn't enough and I have to fast so that God will bring me a significant other and God will listen to me If I do this thing where I deprive myself of food, it's a very result-oriented view of the practice. Now, do remarkable things happen when people fast? Absolutely. Does God answer prayers in miraculous ways? Absolutely. But I can tell you there are just as many times, you can see it in Scripture, and you can see it in people's lives where they fast, and nothing materially changes about their circumstances where people go into a fast not having any agenda, not really having something they want God to do. And this is actually what we see in our passage today. Jesus doesn't go into the wilderness to fast because he needs something. In fact, the context of this moment is that Jesus has just been baptized, and then what do we read in verse 1? Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, left the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness where for 40 days... He was tempted by the devil. He didn't go fast in order to get the Holy Spirit. He was already full of the Holy Spirit. He didn't go to fast because it was something he needed to be fixed in his ministry. He went into the wilderness before he did anything, before he stepped foot into public ministry. So Jesus doesn't fast in order to earn God's love. He fasts as a response to receiving God's love. At his baptism, if you remember... Uh, the Holy Spirit descends on Jesus like a dove, and a voice from heaven says, this is my son whom I love. With you, I am well pleased. And as a response to that moment, Jesus says, you know what? I'm not going to eat for the next 40 days. a very strange thing to do, right? Because he doesn't have anything to prove. He's already heard, you're loved. You're my son with whom I am well pleased. He knows he's deeply loved, and yet for some reason in Jesus' mind, this is the logical next move. And so if this shows us anything, it's that the heart of fasting is not about trying to get results, but it's about having a physical embodied experience that helps us become more aware of God's love and God's presence that's at work in us and in the world. So it's not about getting God to do something for me, It's about aligning myself to God's heart. Okay, so that's fasting. Now, what is the significance of refraining from food in particular? Okay, and there's a lot I could say about this because I think um, our culture historically has had a very complicated relationship with food. Uh, We live in Los Angeles, and I don't care what anyone says. I believe we are in the greatest food city in the world. Um, I think 10 years ago, you might have been able to make an argument for New York, but I think that's all gone now, and I think LA is the greatest. Maybe besides like bagels and pizza, um, I, there is nothing that you can find, I think, in New York that LA doesn't do better. Okay? And when my friends come visit, uh, all they want to do is eat. You know, They usually have a list of places they need to go. We're eating six meals a day, and they still can't seem to like, get through everything. And we live for food, right? Uh, they, they'll come into the airport, their first stop, there's that In-N-Out that's right next to the airport. They'll go to the In-N-Out, drive, you know, they'll, they'll get the double-double on the way to K-Town where they're going to have Korean barbecue. And then right after Korean barbecue, it's like, what do you want for dessert? You, you want to go ice cream, boba, like shaved ice. There's, there's so many different options. And then after dessert, what do you do? You get tacos, Right? And you do all this in a span of two hours, and it's glorious. You should never eat a bad meal in L.A., okay? When, when I eat a bad meal in L.A., I, I question the meaning of life. People in L.A. Uh, spend more time on Yelp looking for the thing, deciding like, what they're going to eat than they do actually eating. Okay? You should never have a bad meal here because in L.A., food is God. But here's where things get really weird. Because in LA, food is also the devil, okay? Because uh, everybody in LA is on a diet, and food is the enemy. Keto, Whole30, Atkins, South Beach, Special K. There's a new fad diet all the time, right? We're a city obsessed with image and appearance and vanity where all restaurants have to have a healthy, low-cal option if they want to stay in business. And so to say that we have a complicated relationship with food here in L.A. is an understatement. But even apart from that, which I think makes the practice of fasting particularly hard hard in our city, food is one of the few things in life that is a basic human necessity. Outside of maybe sleep, there is nothing that you will do every day for your entire life from childhood to adulthood we will all eat will you skip meals sometimes because you know you got you're too busy or you're anxious or you're sad absolutely but at some point everyone needs to eat and we don't just eat for physical sustenance everyone here knows that eating is a huge part of our social life as well you cannot hang out in LA for one day Without eating something with someone, eating is not just something you do, it's a way of life. And so voluntarily refraining from food for even 24 hours in a city like ours is a huge interruption to our lives. Huge. But if there's anything I think these past few years have taught us, it's that interruptions are absolutely necessary for us to grow The pandemic, as horrible and disruptive disruptive as it was, it was a huge wake-up call to so many of us, right? Because life as we knew it just stopped on a dime. And we said to ourselves, how are we going to do friendship like this on Zoom? How are we going to do marriage quarantined in our own homes? And I think marriages were tested. We said, how are we going to do church when we can't gather in person, Right? And, and as disruptive as it was, I do think it was such a necessary time where all of us had to take a hard look at ourselves and examine what are the things that are really important to us. Fasting is a way to intentionally incorporate a divine interruption into your life to disrupt the most basic rhythm you have, the rhythm of eating, and it almost acts like a hard reset to your soul. Okay, well, if we're not fasting to produce a specific result, why do we fast? And this is the second point. Why do we fast? What is the purpose of fasting? What was it that compelled Jesus, the Son of God, to not eat for 40 days before his public ministry? And I'm going to give us three things. Number one, we fast to be reminded of our frailty as human beings. One of the things you will realize when you start to fast is just how weak you really are. Um, because I hadn't fasted in so long and I felt like I needed to, I, I couldn't preach this sermon without integrity if I didn't fast myself. So this week I fasted um, and I don't say that to show off, it was really hard. And um, I took my kids to McDonald's and uh, they're eating and they're finished with the meal and I'm taking their tray into the trash can and the barbecue sauce, kind of like a part of it spills on my thumb, okay? And I looked at that barbecue sauce, no joke, like a solid 15 seconds. Um, And I realized, like, you're a pastor. Like, it's barbecue sauce. And when you start to fast, there are going to be moments when you're like, I am a CEO of a multi-million dollar company that I basically created out of nothing, and I can't stop staring longingly at that celery stick that's on on the table. And you're gonna be like, I am so weak. I think often we go through life thinking that we are a lot stronger than we actually are. And it's not just a physical thing, we know it's emotional too, right? I mean, not eating one meal turns many of us into monsters, okay? Being hangry is an actual thing, right? We talk about being hangry. And it's funny because when you haven't eaten, everything annoys you. You're a little bit more irritable. You're a little bit snappier. And every time someone's like, I'm sorry, I just haven't eaten and I'm starving. This isn't the real me. No, that is the real you. That is absolutely the real you. Who a person is when you strip them of their basic necessities is who they really are, and there is no way that you can you can be reminded that you are not maybe the patient, loving, compassionate, kind person than you are, than to intentionally refrain from eating food. You start to understand I'm not that strong. I depend on things entirely outside of myself to keep me and my family alive. And this is why people tell me, you know, when they experience a death in the family or they experience a life-altering tragedy or have a near-death experience, they tell me I just feel hyper in tune with God. Because there are these moments in our lives when, again, we realize how frail we are. We realize how weak we are. And we realize, oh my gosh, like... I'm not in control of my life. When these things happen and our whole life goes out of whack. And I think incorporating these divine interruptions into our lives intentionally is regularly reminding us that no matter what we do, no matter how skilled we are, no matter how well we plot and plan, we are not in control of our lives. I think it's very telling That Jesus, who was full of the Holy Spirit, did not start his ministry by flexing his strength. Jesus started his ministry by sitting in his weakness. And he said, there's something about becoming in touch with my frailty that I know I'm going to need for the days ahead. Okay, so that's the first thing. The second reason we fast is to enact the freedom from our flesh to enact our freedom from the flesh. Now, by flesh, I'm not talking about our literal physical bodies um, because our bodies are a gift from God. They're a good thing, right? If anything, I think fasting allows us to become much more in tune with our bodies. When I say flesh, I'm using the word the way the Apostle Paul often uses it, the way we see it in Scripture. This word that basically is describing humanity's fallen nature. This force inside of all of us that seeks to pull us away from God, that seeks to get us to live apart from God's power, to give in to all of our raw human instincts. It's what Adam and Eve gave into when the serpent came to them in the garden. And what did the serpent offer them? A piece of fruit. Offer them food. And when they presented it to them, they had a choice. Do I trust God or do I trust myself? And they trusted themselves. And so when the enemy comes to the second Adam, Jesus, in the wilderness, what do you know? He does the same exact thing. He dangles a piece of food in front of him and says, if you are the son of God, just turn this bread into stone. It'll be fine. And I think the fact that the first temptation is the temptation of food is very telling. Because food is not a bad thing. It's actually a good thing. It's a gift from God meant to be enjoyed, and it's a reminder that it's not just the bad things that pull us from God, but good things. Work is a good thing. We're called to work. Family is a good thing. We're called to cultivate a family life. But when those things begin to take the place of God in our lives, when work and finances become the source of our security and our identity and significance, good things can become horrible things they can be the biggest barriers to our relationship with god when we make them more than they were ever meant to be by fasting from a good thing like food we're saying i'm going to intentionally forego something that is good to focus on that which is ultimate you know i've read this text so many times and for some reason i never caught this before I used to read this text and think to myself, Jesus is fasting in the wilderness for 40 days and when the devil finally gives him that first temptation of the bread, I was like, man, Jesus is is in his most mentally weak state. I was like, like like the spirit set him up for failure because he has starved for the past 40 days and the devil is like, turn this stone into bread. But what I didn't realize is that at the end of the 40 days, Jesus was not at the bottom of his his mental strength. He was at the peak of his power. Jesus was actually so powerful. He was physically weak, but you got to think, for the past 40 days, every day he's been enacting his freedom from the flesh. Every day he's been foregoing something good for something ultimate. So by the time Satan tempts him, Jesus is like, what can you possibly do to me now? And he says, man does not live by bread alone. Jesus shows us what true freedom looks like. It's not doing everything you want to do. It's choosing what is ultimate over what is good. Okay, so that's the second reason. Finally, the third reason we fast is to live in the not yet. To live in the not yet. And here's what I mean. When Jesus came into the world, he inaugurated a new kingdom. He said, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It was a new way of being. He says, we're going to do things differently. In my kingdom, people are going to operate on a completely different wavelength. In some sense, when we say that Jesus died on the cross, it was almost like this pinprick of light in a dark world, right? When you see this light starting to move through the darkness, but we have not seen the fullness of that light come to be. It's what theologians call living in the already, but not yet. Right? The kingdom is already here, the spirit is here, the spirit is alive and moving in us and in the world, but at the same time, the kingdom is not fully realized. We still see sickness, injustice, death, tragedy all around us. And there's this famous passage about fasting in Matthew 9 where Jesus is questioned about fasting and John's disciples ask him, how come the Pharisees fast often but your disciples don't? And Jesus responds by saying, can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? And by bridegroom, he's talking about himself. And he says, the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them and then they will fast. And what Jesus is saying is, look, I'm going to die soon and I'm going to ascend to the Father. And when that time comes, there's going to be fasting because the whole earth is gonna be groaning for the bridegroom to return and come back and finish what he started. So in Jesus' mind, fasting is connected to this longing for the not yet of the kingdom. When we fast, we give deep expression to our ache for home that lives inside all of us. You know, my, my freshman year, it was my first time living outside of SoCal. I grew up in OC and my freshman year, I went to Philadelphia for college and this is before cell phones and so I needed like a calling card in order to call my parents and my dorm room was on the fifth on a fifth floor walk up and it was so small that you know like honestly I think I could like touch both walls by putting my arms out like this and the first month like it was so lonely I was I felt like I made the wrong decision and you know, I wanted to go home. And I remember like, maybe like three months in, um, I get a notification that there's like a package for me in the mail. And I, I go down and it's this huge box and it's like packed in dry ice. And I open it up and basically like my mom had packed me like frozen, like um, kimchi jjigae, which is kimchi stew, like all these marinated meats she basically froze all her favorite um, side dishes, everything she knew I loved to eat, and I just cried because I was like, I miss home so much. And it was this deep ache for home. In the Bible, most of the examples of fasting are connected to grief and mourning. Grief over our own brokenness and grief over the state of the world. And when you start to fast, the first thing that will happen is you will start to examine your own life. You will start to see all the not-yets inside of us. The ways we are not yet the father or the husband or the spouse or the friend we know we need to be. The way we are not yet the loving, kind, patient person all of us long to be. And we're called to grieve that. And we're called to come to God in repentance, and to throw ourselves again on His grace. Fasting allows us to embody that grief. When we ache for food, it's this physical enactment of our ache for home. But it's not just grieving the not yet inside of us, it's grieving the not yet in the world. We look around, and there is so much brokenness all around us. So many people in our city who do not have access to basic human necessities like shelter, food, clean water, these things that you and I so easily take for granted. And when we fast, for at least a brief window of time, we stand in solidarity with the poor. And we say, this is not right. This is not the way things are supposed to be. And we experience the ache of a world that is collectively longing for home. So that's why we fast. How do we fast? And I want to say, interestingly enough, the Bible doesn't give us any specific instructions on how to fast, how long we're supposed to fast. You know, are we allowed to drink coffee? You know, or are we allowed to, you know, drink juice? Like, what is a fast? How long is a good fast? And, you know, if I, if I mess up and I eat, like, a fry, like, does the fast start over? And the Bible gives us nothing about that. And I think sometimes we get so obsessed with the technique and the method that we actually forget the motive. Um, and I think this is where, like, fasting can easily become legalism, okay? If we start to practice this in our lives. For some of us, it might just be one meal. For some of us, it might be 24 hours. For others of us, it might be longer than that. The goal is simply to try to get to the place of dependence on God. Like I said, all these practices are just portals to a person. Because underneath every ache that we have, what we all ache for is a person. And we're doing all of these things. We're simplifying our lives. We're giving of our time and resources. We're practicing silence and solitude. Why? So we can access the person of Jesus Christ and live in His love and grace every day of our lives. Okay? Now, when you fast, if this is something you want to try, know that it's going to be really hard. Okay? I love that Luke adds a little detail in verse 2 when he says... He, Jesus, ate nothing during those days, and at the end of them, he was hungry. Jesus was hungry. Not eating for 40 days was really hard for Jesus. And when you fast, I guarantee you, the day you choose to fast is always going to be the day they give out free taquitos at lunch in the office. Always. The day you fast is always when your friend is going to bring over something and it's like, oh, you want to have some? It's going to be hard. You should expect resistance. And again, the idea is not to deprive yourself of something in an effort to prove your your devotion to God. It's using these opportunities of divine interruption to align our hearts with God's heart. It's like every time we feel that hunger pain, every time we wake up in the middle of the night because our stomach is empty and we feel our stomach growling, It's an opportunity in that moment to say, I'm so hungry, but may my hunger for you drive out every other hunger. And know this, there are, you know, you're not going to get a medal for fasting, okay? Like, there's nothing that in it, if you fast long or short, stop when you want to stop. The goal is not to impress God or get something from him. The goal is to experience life with him in a more visceral way way now one thing the bible talks about does talk about is communal fasting okay in the book of joel god declares a holy fast where he summons all the elders and he summons everyone in the land and he says i want everyone to fast and i want everyone to cry out to god together and i think there's something really powerful about that image when it's not just an individual having this like experience with god but a community getting into god's presence together to respond to what God is up to in their midst. And so I've been thinking about how to give this practice some teeth in our church. And so here's what we're going to do. Lent begins this Wednesday. Okay, it's Ash Wednesday. And for the 40 days of Lent, okay, which excludes Sunday, we're actually going to do a communal fast as a church. And what that's going to look like for you is if you go on our website right now, on the front page, you'll see Something that says 40 days, citizens, 40 days of prayer and fasting. And it'll give you the option of basically you can sign up for one day out of the 40 days. You can sign up multiple times and sign up for multiple days if you want. Uh, You know, you can, multiple people can sign up for the same day. But I think there's just going to be something very powerful to know that over the next 40 days leading up to Easter, our community is going to be covered in prayer, that there's always someone, at least one person, who's going to be fasting that day. Okay? And I, I feel like really, really convicted to do this because I have felt over the past few months, and I, I believe our staff is feeling this too, I really believe God is up to something Here at Citizens. Um, I also believe God is up to something in the church. Capital C. I don't know what it is, but I can feel it. I can feel that we are on on the cusp of a powerful move of God in our families, in our culture, in our world. And I love that our kids are joining us today for worship because my heart is so burdened for the next generation. I think about how confusing it must be to grow up in today's world. How confusing it must be as a child to be exposed to so much death and violence and tragedy at such a young age. How to have to navigate huge questions around identity and purpose and meaning. Questions we didn't have to to wrestle with as a child. Like my kids are seven and five and they're asking me questions about why people shoot up schools. And I feel so burdened For this next generation, I believe God is calling us to fast and to pray, to contend on their behalf, to repent for the ways that we have failed uh, as a church, to embody Christ and to express our desperation for God. In the end, the heart of fasting is a heart that says, not my will, but yours be done. And my prayer is that the Spirit would ignite in our community a hunger and an ache for God so deep that our hearts cry in every moment of our lives would be not my will, but yours be done. Let's pray. As always, I want to give us a moment to reflect on... On anything you've heard. And again, the the heart of fasting is a physical embodiment of that phrase not my will, but yours be done. Rather than be fed by food, I wanna be fed by you. Rather than trust material things, I wanna trust you. And so I wanna give us a moment to reflect what are the areas in your life where you need to say, not my will? but yours be done. Is it a big decision coming up? Is it relational issues with someone? Is it the way we raise our kids? Now give us a moment to say that prayer, to surrender it to God, to say, not my will, but yours be done. Lord, we so deeply long for home. We look at our lives, we look at the world, and we know that things are not the way they should be. And we're homesick. And God, I just pray that we would recognize and acknowledge that the only place our souls can find rest the only place we can find and experience home is with you, is in your presence and living life with you. So more than just a, a, a simple practice that we incorporate into our lives, God, I pray for the spirit to ignite in all of us a deep hunger to see your kingdom on Earth as it is in heaven, in L.A., as it is in heaven, in our homes, as it is in heaven, in our hearts. Thank you for this word. Thank you for the gift of this community that we can experience life with you together as a church. We love you. We entrust our lives to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.